full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. How do you sum up Barry Ritholtz? In past lives, he was a dashing college equestrian, then an unhappy attorney. He then shifted to Wall Street where he became an angel investor and student of the markets. On the eve of the financial crisis, he was that rare strategist who warned clients to get the heck out. There's a coming implosion. He's since authored the book Bailout Nation and a ton of great columns for The Washington Post and Bloomberg. His big picture blog is required reading for investors. Barry sports a year-round tan, unflappable hair, and more revenue streams than a Miami City councilman. Without further ado, presenting You Don't Know Writ, an hour with Barry Ritholtz. (laughs) On full disclosure, y'all ready for this? Fiduciary, columnist, activist, advocate, polemicist, Long Islander, Barry Ritholtz, you're like Wall Street's answer to Turducken. You do a little bit of everything. (laughs) Yes, um... That just means I have no attention span and no ability to follow through on anything. Well, tell me how you got here. When did you have your investing coming of age? Uh, because as, as your bio says, you know, what were you, a math and physics person? Um, yeah. you, you were a, a heartthrob equestrian in 81, I guess, when the world was gawking at uh, Bruce Jenner and the like. You know, there was also Barry Ritholds back there. How did you end up uh, as an investor? So when I was a kid, my father said to me in a discussion about vocabulary and reading and things like that, start reading the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and you'll have a better sense of what good writing is and what a strong vocabulary is like. So I started reading both of them. And after you do that for a few years, by the way, that's as like a 12-year-old. So by the time you're 15, 16, you're pretty familiar with a lot of what's going on in finance, and it was kind of fascinating, and it was always in the back of my head. Look, growing up, I knew I was going to law school. There was no doubt about that. When there was a pop-up fly in the infield, and there was a question of the rule, everybody turned to, all right, ask Ritholtz, what's the infield fly rule? Just because I had a mind for that sort of stuff. But uh, loved law school, did not love being a lawyer. And the the data on that is seven years later, 50% of law school graduates are not practicing law. And I joined their ranks pretty quickly. Do you remember the first stock you bought or the first investment you had? Was it a post-bar mitzvah thing or (laughs) roughly when? No, I don't remember the first stock. You know, when I started on the street, I started as a trader. Where? And this was back in the day. We used to call it sneaker net where at the end of the trade day, you would export all of your trades to an Excel spreadsheet, download that to a 3.5-inch floppy disk, and walk it into the head trader's office. So you were like a mule? Pretty much. I mean, that's what the old days were like. It wasn't like... You look at a trading desk today, the head of trading has real-time data that shows the liability and exposure that the desk has, uh, that shows all the outstanding positions, the ongoing P&L. The the data is astonishing compared to what we did, which was, I mean, you could pretty much fake trades at least for three or four days until the margin call started. Um, Not that I ever did that, but it was an obvious flaw in the system. And anybody who looked at things from a systemic point of view, that big picture view is kind of my natural perspective said, hey, you guys have a real potential liability here, and they didn't really want to hear that from some newbie trader. 
was there an epiphany moment, uh, a come to Jesus moment where you're like, gosh, this could be a great career option for me. Not only can I, can I make money, but I can use it as a prism through which to, to view the world and opine on the world and uh, really be at this fun nexus of, of being a practitioner, a fiduciary, and a writer. You know, there was a guy who sat next to me on the trading desk. And when who was had this? The biggest cojones of any trader I ever saw. The guy was fearless. When was this? And he would make a lot of money and lose a lot of money. And the guy on the other side of me was the polar opposite. He was meticulous and structured and everything he did. Uh, you know, I, I did a column not too long ago about why you want to, you know, uh, why you don't want to invest like the Seattle Seahawks. You want to invest like the Green Bay Packers, methodical, systemic, just slow, grind your way down the field, as opposed to taking these low probability but exciting plays. Play football like the Seahawks, but invest like the, the Packers did. And these two guys on either side of me were literally Seattle Seahawks throw up a Hail Mary versus grind it out. And... Instead of saying, well, which trading methodology is the one that's going to make me more money, I looked at it as, as what's different between these two traders? What psychological factors are driving one to this approach and one to that approach? Because you have to think trading desks and investors around the country, around the world, are running through this same sort of process. How much risk am I going to take? How reckless or, or conservative am I going to be? And that led, that come to Jesus moment was what you're buying and selling matters far less than your own behavior and the psychology that drives it. And that led to, I want to say, about 20 years of research into behavioral economics and neurofinance before all the cool kids were doing it. Wait, but when was this roughly when you had that epiphany? Mid nineties, mid nineties, or and so. And so you, 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 there was, a, you know, you resisted this Bud Fox trying to take a Daryl Hannah moment. I mean, that intoxication of the easy riches and the fancy sports car. You're thinking behavioral economics. D don't get me wrong. I, I love whatever toys I've managed to accumulate, and I like the security that money brings. But I was never motivated by money. It was never. It was never a way to keep score. It was never proof of success or failure. And if it wasn't for my wife saying, you know, you have to choose, either spend less or earn more, I kind of said, well, I don't really like thinking about what I spend and keeping track of it. It's a waste of mental bandwidth, so I better earn a little more. So I started making more. It, well, was, it wasn't, all right, I want to have the all these riches. It was... Just sort of, oh, really? If I make a little more, I don't have to pay attention to my spending rate? Then then I'll do that. But it's not like you could just be a little bit fiduciary. Once you are a fiduciary and you're out there saying strategist or chief investment officer, you are on the hook seven days a week if you're on vacation with your family when an uh, epic calamity like 2008, 2009 happens. When did you decide that, you know what? I'm okay going, uh, uh, you know, parlaying my position as a student and observer and spectator into actual money manager. So I used to get people offering me money to manage all the time. And uh, when I was younger, and not that I'm not still dumb, but dumber yet, I would turn the money down and I would refer it out to third people, third parties. One day I get a. Um, Somebody I'm dealing with on the internet, we're just emailing back and forth over the years, actually says, 
I'm trying not to describe them with great detail so they can't be observed. Their family owned a certain business type that had distinct uh, locations, and each location could be sold separately. Well, wait, wait. You're trying to say you manage mob money. No, no, no. <laughs> not quite. Real estate, which is close. So they sold something, and it was uh, about $3 million, and the person said to me, Look, I'm looking for income. I don't want a lot of risk. I don't want to pay a lot of taxes. Uh, what would you suggest? I, so I referred him to a person that manages muni bonds. Muni bonds, tax-free, throw-off income, no, very, very low risk. Uh, a few days later, I get a call. So what do you think of this private placement? Mike, what are you talking about? You said you want no risk, you want income, and you don't want to pay taxes. That's muni is... There's, there's your solution. And, and well, the person you referred me to basically is said this this private is could be, uh, listen, privates, that sort of venture stuff, I, I'm not telling you not to do that, but it doesn't check off any of your boxes. It's high risk. It rarely pays off. If it does, you're going to owe a lot of taxes on it. And so this is the exact opposite of what you were looking for. So what should I do? So the answer was, congratulations, you're the first client of uh, Ritholtz Wealth Management. And that's literally how that started. So it was almost accidental. Um, I mean, I think a lot of forces were driving this. It's hard to be a critic of the way Wall Street operates and the way asset management, and especially the brokerage side that is so conflicted with clients, operates without willing to be willing to roll up your sleeves and say, okay, here's the right way to do this. I think that's a pretty significant set of motivations that event, you know, made it eventual, made it inevitable this was going to happen. Mm. And so you started blogging in 2003. Uh, I started up- on TypePad in 2003. Type-pad. I actually began blogging on a Yahoo property called GeoCities oh, in yeah, the late 90s. Oh, yeah, I remember 90s. it well. Isn't GeoCity, is GeoCities what Mark Gone. Cuban made his money on? No, that was something No, on that broadcast. was broadcast.com. <laughs> so GeoCities was, uh, it was old HTML. Sure, I remember so it well, right. So it would take you a half hour to write something, and then three hours to code it by hand. And this is really pre-Wi-Fi and everything else, obviously pre, you know, the, the 2G pre-Wi-Fi. era. And you are you are 30,000 plus posts into this now, and you've written about that for the Washington Post, that you learn a lot about yourself and the markets and readers and clients and uh, predilections the world over when you've posted that many dispatches. It's an ongoing process that... Look, I, I've been fond of stealing Daniel Borston, the former librarian of Congress's great quote, which is, I write to figure out what I think, besides most of the bars are closed at that time anyway. So the process of thinking about what you want to say, figuring out how you want to present that information, idea, argument, and then actually executing it really helps to crystallize your thought process. And every now and again, you'll start writing something and say, oh, you know, maybe this isn't what I really think. The arguments don't hold up. I don't understand. Are you a Long Islander? Did you grow up in Long Island? Born in Brooklyn, lived in Teaneck, New Jersey till sixth grade, and then from sixth grade till college was Long Island. So what did your parents do? Um, Dad owned a retail store. He originally was a placement manager for engineers and scientists, and then 
decided to retire out of Manhattan, open up a sporting goods store. So I had lots of sweatshirts and sneakers growing up. And my mom was a real estate agent. Hmm. So my fascination with real, real estate has been an ongoing dinner table conversation since I was a kid. But putting all these pieces together, you know, your dad exhorting you to take the hard classes and do well and go to a good school. And you thought, you're, you know, you're destined to, to get a JD and, and everything. When did you finally realize you almost had like a toolbox of sorts, uh, uh, be it diversification or keeping investing simple or a, an ethos to kind of take out there and share with the world? Kind of that aha moment. It, I think it comes along gradually. You, The nice thing about mathematics is that you learn some very specific rules. The nice thing about physics is that you have a sense of, hey, there's a way to figure out how the world works. And if we can launch a satellite into space and land on a comet as a species, then these rules have to be pretty substantial to have this little 20-foot thing land on a ball of ice and, and rock moving you know, 50,000 miles an hour through space. Maybe it's even more than that. The, maybe it's 50,000 miles a second. It's some insane number. The satellite is circling, uh, and we managed to, to touch down on it. Uh, that That's something that really changes how you see the world. And then law school gives you a number of tools, including deductive reasoning and logic and the idea that there is a governing set of principles that are both Lasting yet flexible changes how you see the world. And then, uh, you know, the real experience in the markets, the the old joke is if you don't know who you are, the markets are an expensive place to find out. Mm. That's true, but you probably start out in the markets not understanding the rules. And if you pay attention, the market is a very, very good teacher. We're talking to Barry Ritholtz, who's chief investment officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management. He's the author of Bailout Nation and runs the finance blog, The Big Picture. You can read him uh, where he is prolific on Bloomberg View and at the WashingtonPost.com. Uh, uh, Barry, I have a question. You talk about science and exactitude and all this stuff. I think back to the minutes of uh, the Federal Reserve meetings in 2007. And when you go back and look at it and how all these decorated economists completely missed what was going on, the systemic nature of what was maybe just a garden variety slowdown in the housing market that actually had tentacles to every last end of the global financial system. Uh, what what were these guys missing that you kind of, you knew was on the horizon uh, when you think back to your time in 2006 or 2007? So first, I have a tremendous advantage of not being an economist which I think is a huge, huge burden for anybody to have to bear if you're looking at markets. Because there's this completely false presumption that you can somehow understand what's happening by looking at economic data. That's the first problem. And then the second problem is that economics suffers from what I call physics penis envy, which is... Economics can't land a, a, a craft on a comet 500 million miles away traveling at 50,000 whatever per, per hour per minute. Um, it's a very soft science. They jimmy a lot of math. And so you pull up any Wait, Jimmy? economics paper, jimmy? it's festooned with mathematics, which <laughs> doesn't belong there. It's, it's an attempt to compensate for a shortcoming— not a physical shortcoming, but 
for the fact that economics cannot do what a hard science can do, which is with great precision tell you the exact location of the planets, with great precision develop a, a microcircuit. And, and, you know, there's so many examples of what we can do with science and technology because there are hard rules, of which we're every day learning more and more and new rules and discovering new particles. And, and anybody who thinks science is a finished project hasn't paying attention for the past thousand years. But what was the tell? What was the tell to you that something really big is happening? Again, not just your typical correction or, you know, even a 30 percent calamity, but that this is like a once in a hundred year event. So I did a piece which actually was the first thing that I ever ran on John Molden's site, which was called Our Backwards Real Estate Driven Economy. And it basically said, you know, most recessions end with the Fed lowering rates, and that leads to a virtuous cycle of increased hiring, increased CapEx spending, raises, and then people go out at, later in that cycle and either buy new houses or sell a small house and move to a bigger house. The whole upgrade cycle is out there. But housing tends to be somewhat later in the cycle. In 05, 06, 07, it was pretty obvious that housing was the cycle. You had the huge dot-com collapse in 2000 to 03, and nothing else really recovered normally except housing driven by ultra-low rates, which is pre-crisis. Anything priced in dollars went through the ceiling. Anything priced in credit blew up. And when you looked at the data behind that, it was pretty clear that this was totally aberrational. The line I used over time was all of the history of credit was based on the borrower's ability to service the debt. That's a million years of, of uh, the guy who invented the first wheel that Og wanted to buy um, on a lease. Well, Og's a big guy. He's a good provider. He can kills a lot of wildebeest. Sure, I'll, I'll extend credit to Og. He can buy the wheel. The exception was from 2000 one or two to 2007 when the driving factor became the lender's ability to sell that paper to a third-party securitizer. That's a very, very different set of credit credentials, one that ultimately proved to be not very good, and that's why that house of card collapsed. But if you looked at it closely, it was pretty clear that the normal credit cycle and the normal housing cycle were not in effect. And yet everybody tried to tell us, they tried to sell us on this new normal, which you were really skeptical about throughout, that in fact, uh, you know, this was going to be uh, an issue that markets and our currency and our, our debt would not be able to resolve. The overhang would last for a decade. And certainly we, we still feel the overhang. We're not really at full employment. You can buy the headline numbers, but uh, people do not feel as hale and hearty as they did in 2006. The markets have really snapped back. Heck, we've even seen the NASDAQ composite, which was uh, the year 2000 golden child back at a total return high uh, with, with stalwarts like Apple, uh, really resurgent again. Uh, but something does feel different. Something fundamentally was shaken. Um, never before as the Federal Reserve had to uh, conduct all these experiments to resuscitate the economy. And it hasn't pulled back the punch bowl yet. So it's like we're all, you know, a lot of us on Wall Street are, 
are breathing this sigh of relief, and yet we're terrified of what normalcy can be. We still don't know what normal was or is supposed to be. You know, there are a lot of factors that have been in place for a long time, and they're all coming together very, very rapidly. A lot of this has to do with technology, but globalization has had an impact. Uh, Increased productivity is having an impact. The demographics in the United States, the aging of the baby boomers and the ongoing retirement of people. You know, in the Masters in Business podcast I do, there are guys who were there in the early 80s who had lived through the horrible markets of the 70s. And they say this period is somewhat reminiscent of the early 80s. So Jeff Sout and Laszlo Barini and um, Ralph Acampora, they've all kind of said the doubting of everything, the assumption that the crash and the bad market are going to last around forever, that recency bias, that's similar to what we saw after the bear market of the 70s. The Dow kissed 1,000 in 1966. Didn't get over that till 1982 on a permanent basis. So you were riding, a 16 wait, you year were period. riding horses in 1982. What do you know? Um, uh, those of us who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. I, I know how to read a book, <laughs> and I know how to speak to people who are older, smarter, more experienced than me, and say, "What was it like?" Now hold that thought. We're talking to Barry Ritholtz, who you know, 100 years from now, they're going to look back at this uh, panic of 2008 and say, "Barry Ritholtz was the I Claudius of Wall Street." Stay with us. <laughs> Ritholtz, the big meaning of life question, the big picture. When, in your recollection, was it normal? When was it last normal in our country? It's never normal. It's. Uh, I remember growing up in the 1970s and watching the price of gas go from like 39 to 99 cents, saying, wow, I'll never be able to buy cheap gas again. And the general malaise that was the post- Vietnam post-Watergate era, the resignation of Richard Nixon, uh, high inflation. Uh, go back and look at the headlines from any decade. It's it's going to be pretty awful. Laszlo Barini does this great thing. He accumulates all these market and economic-related headlines and puts them in a book quarterly, and his clients get that. And you pull any one of these out at random and read it, and you would say, oh, my God, how can anybody put money at risk? This is awful. This is the world is ending. But as it turns out, that end of world bet, the Armageddon bet, that's got a perfect record of being a money losing bet over time. Essentially, it requires you to make a bet against the ingenuity of human beings. Not all of them, because we know many humans are high functioning idiots, but um, the best minds, the most insightful, innovative, creative people, are what drives a species forward, what drives technology forward. So to make that bet, to to say, 
well, this is different. It's different this time. It's always looks terrible at the moment. And yet the economy manages to shake it off. The market manages to laugh and go forward. These days, especially the noise machine is so overwhelming. The amount of chatter and silliness and negativity. I've there was a column I did for Washington Post that said, in times of panic, uh, you know, the, the most negative and lunatic viewpoints rise to the top, and it's your job to ignore them. But let's say, you know, in fairness to the critics, and they're the, the shill people out there like Peter Schiff, you know, Nouriel Rabini and the likes were saying that this was going to be really different this time, and it was. But again, seven years later, uh, we are at record highs on the market. But after My colleague all, Josh Brown says it's always different this time. It's always different this time. The Federal Reserve did take rather unprecedented measures. A lot of critics out there are just waiting for that comeuppance when the Fed has to take rates back up to somewhere where they, they, they were, maybe in the spring of 2007, and everybody freaks out. And... Uh, at, you know, the asset markets out there, the, the U.S. stock market has gained something like $17 trillion of wealth from trough to peak, largely in large part because people say that the Federal Reserve has been throwing trillions of dollars of cash at the problem. So so let me break that down into three distinct... But my point is that human ingenuity and hardworking and keeping your, your head down and the nose of the grindstone and working double shifts did not, on balance, get us out of this recession. Um... It's more nuanced than that. So first, let me name drop and said, when I had Bill Gross on the program, some a line you don't get to say all that often, he said, you know, the Fed's mistake was they took rates down to zero. They should have stopped at 1% or left them a little room to move, and, and they should have started raising them. But what should the Fed have done? Allowed the, another Great Depression to have happened? That That's idiocy to sit by and do why do you accept that a Great Depression would have happened? I mean, those the, the, those things were peculiar to, uh, you know, 1929, 1930, 31. When, when you have the CEOs of GE and Ford and McDonald's calling the White House and saying, hey, mother I'm not going to make payroll this month because there is no cash flow. Credit has frozen. Unless that's an after-the-fact fabrication, you got to think really nasty was coming. There's no other way to. And so when we look at people who are not radicalized and not given to extreme statements, say, hey, this was a horrific recession and it very easily could have been a terrible depression. I I have to give them the benefit of the doubt and say that that's not far off. By the way, I'm fond of saying, you know, there, there was a post I did not too long ago called Where Sea Monsters Live. And it's not my job to be a Fed critic. It's my job to figure out the landscape, to look at the tides and the wind and and understand where sea monsters live and navigate my clients safely to their destination. But a lot of managers, a lot of hedge fund managers and other people think that they're working in a think tank and that it's their sole job to rail against the Fed. My job is to say, what is low interest rates and QE going to do to asset classes? And the answer is make them go higher. That's my sole responsibility to clients is uh, this is what's going to happen based on what the Fed's doing. Not let me give you 47 reasons why the Fed will be the end of us all. Sure, sure. So so that's number one. Number two, and I think this is where people make a mistake when they just look at the Fed. 
So first, you don't look at the trough to peak return in the markets. Look at the markets to where they were. If, if you're going to do that, I'm going to say, well, look at the 07 highs to now. We're, we're marginally higher. We had a huge drop and a huge snapback. But essentially, we've gained from the 07 highs moderately. Or go back and look at 10 or 20 years worth of data and say, what should the average rate of gains be and, and come up with a more reasonable number? Let me also point out that profits had plummeted to zero practically, and you've had 160 or 180 percent. I haven't looked at the most recent quarter's data yet, but you've had a huge profit recovery. That's a giant driver of stock prices. Sure. And a ton of that, and, you know, you've, you've been a huge spectator. It's, it's like the biggest component in the market is Apple. Uh, the biggest company in history, the biggest cash hoard in history. That maybe that ingenuity, because if you timestamp the release of the iPhone to mid two thousand seven, and roughly uh, symmetrical to the the contours of the financial crisis, you know, peak to trough and everything, that is uh, both a fascinating thing and a worrying thing in many people's eyes because it represents so much of the stock market right now. We we used to jokingly say there are four or five asset classes: stocks. Bonds, commodities, real estate, and Apple. Apple has successfully disrupted five or six separate industries. All right, before they came along, the cell phone industry was this sleepy, crappy, um, mediocre handsets, terrible reception. None of the grace and power and and innovation of the modern computer world had found their way to phones. And essentially, my iPhone is a small, portable, touchscreen computer. It was brilliant. That was after they disrupted the portable music player industry with iPod, disrupted the music industry, disrupted film. Go down the list. They completely disrupted the entire computer industry with an iPad. If you want to have a laugh, go back and look at the early reviews for the both the iPhone and the subsequent iPad. What the hell do I need a giant phone for? This is a waste of time. I predict this is going to be a loser product. And it's one of the most successful products in, in the world. The iPhone by itself is bigger than 90% of the companies in the S&P 500. The numbers are insane. And the iPhone so, by itself, iPhone Corp is just a seven-year-old company. And again, right. bigger than 95% of the companies in the U.S. stock market. But now take a look at all the different skills that had to go into that. You had to have a familiarity with operating systems and with mobile technology, which the iPod gave them, and with operating systems and with touchscreen. And there's just so many things. Uh, look at iTunes by itself. Just the iTunes music store where you buy apps, movies, games, and and uh, songs. That's a multi-billion dollar company all by itself. So yeah, I always used it, to think that Steve Jobs had to be uniquely inspired and disturbed <laughs> to kind of do all these things together. It's a, such a streak, uh, and we think about you know him posthumously. He's been he's been dead for several years, but that this 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 thing keeps on ticking, and now it's it's exploding into China. And I'm interested in the company from a financial uh, statement perspective. Is what do you do when you're approaching 200 billion dollars of cash? I mean, if you just leave this thing alone, obviously Carl Icahn has been in the news this week. You know, the guy's 110 years old, and I, you know, he's talking, he's telling these guys what to do. The, you know, the most admired tech company in the world. Uh, what, what, what do you do? It's, a, it's literally an embarrassment of riches. Uh, what does a company do with this kind of opportunity and dilemma? It, by the way, it's not just Apple. 
Microsoft, everybody forgets that they're still a valid company with a tremendous cash business, is sitting on $90 billion. Google has a ton of cash. Um, go down the list. Uh, Oracle has a ton of, of cash. There, there are a lot of them, but clearly, you know, the, the Apple pile is, is barely fathomable. I think there's a lot of institutional memory there from the late 90s when there was a genuine question whether or not Apple would survive. I think they don't go out of their way to make these big, splashy acquisitions the way, you know, a Microsoft might or a Compaq and HP might. Or So I think they do these very, very tactical, very strategic acquisitions, and it just gives them the ability to survive regardless of what comes their way. Look, Apple, I can I could promise you this. Apple will outsurvive Carl Icahn. He can make he can live to a hundred and make a lot of noise, and Apple's gonna uh, out survive him. The stock buyback um, has been fairly substantial. The dividend increase has been substantial. I doubt at this point they have any interest in listening to anybody tell them what they want to do. I, and when you start, you know, David Einhorn is sort of stop returning my calls because I kind of responded to his activist demands for Apple because... No, this is a guy know, who said Taco Bell was going to kill Chipotle. I mean, this, I always wonder. And, you know, that's well, that was saying, a bad call on his part, <laughs> but, but he's a, had a know, lot of fantastic also, calls. Also, you know, but, he was also all over Dell and all these other things. There are people, this this segs into the idea of active management, right? And I don't mean to, you know, diss your industry and everything, but you've also been— That's not my industry. No, you well, could diss away. Quite a spectator of how one of the positive things that's happened in this post-crash sobriety is people saying, you know what, I give up to the extent that you can't beat the market, you can just be the market. And the likes of Vanguard, the indexing pioneer, and BlackRock, the ETF giant, they've really benefited uh, from no this. But then does that cause, you know, and this is a bit of a wonky question, if we're all passive holders, do we not really care when companies really screw up, when HP goes out there and wastes $10 billion on something, when a, a, a company, you know, like Dell, which which recently went private, uh, there, there was malfeasance on the board, uh, people just own everything, and, and they're not really owners, they're kind of like, you know, passive members of the stock market. So, two-part answer to that. The short answer is... Gentlemen like Larry Swedrow of Buckingham Asset Management and a very savvy observer of the financial situation, and he's been a investor for decades, many decades, said, that's exactly right. This day-to-day -day stuff, forget earnings noise, forget conference calls, forget non-farm payroll. All that stuff is bullshit. Just buy a broad assortment of index and hold it forever, and I'll see you in retirement. That That's his approach. The the <laughs> the longer answer is it's infotainment. All this nonsense, all these you know the various hedge fund managers and personalities. And look, I, I personally think Jack Welsh is kind of a doddering old man with the dementia. Former, the former CEO of GE, who was former celebrated, CEO right. who who's been accusing the White House of cooking the books on on jobs and just also that is endlessly entertaining and and whether or not you think he's the greatest CEO in history or are aware of the fact that they cooked the books at GE they had an SEC investigation sure. it took them seven or eight years to ultimately settle it I think they settled it in like 08 or 09 back in the 90s and 2000s GE Capital magically helped GE beat by a penny every quarter which was statistically just, impossible I think, right Jack right Vogel it's clearly said, right. nonsense so i think he's a doddering old fool people love him 
But the bottom line is this guy is amazingly entertaining. And the fact that one of the biggest CEOs of one of the biggest companies in the world is willing to go out on Twitter or, or on TV and say radically crazy, idiotic things, that sums up financial television. It's entertainment, infotainment, but it certainly is in a way to base your investments on that's suicide. and you get and by the way you get people like Mark Cuban who sold his you know company what to Yahoo at 98 99 made a ton of money and then laughed at Yahoo haha <laughs> you paid you overpaid <laughs> and now he's out there you know assessing companies in the evening as a as a you know a, a dime store uh, VC and telling people that don't own stocks it's not worth it so uh, yeah i've i've actually argued with him about that um initially on twitter and then on the blog and and to his credit, he engages with me, and when we had him on the podcast, when we had Mark Cuban sit down with us for Masters in Business, it was one of the most astounding hour and a half of, of financial interviews. People raved about that. He was hilarious and insightful and informative and just awesome. He he was great. And so... But it's easy. You know, I it's easy for someone have like him, him sign his book. But wait, but, you know, Barry, it's easy for someone like him to say, you know what, mom and pop, don't be in stocks. Like, what are you going to do? Leave your money in a zero yielding CD no, or money can't. market account? That's why I, I mean, push that's back what, against it. But it's easy at that perch. Or you know, Jack Welch, he's accomplished what he had to accomplish. The company has really gone nowhere since you know he left right before nine eleven. Uh, but it's it's easy kind of when you when you've cashed out to kind of go out there and just riff. By the way, Welsh started in 82 at the beginning of the bull market and left in 2000 at, at the end of the bull market. It was the greatest corporate market timing in history. It was just just astonishing. And we don't talk about GE much anymore. It used to be, you know, as GE goes, so does the market, so does the rest of the world. It was almost like considered a, a mutual fund that, that held a, a piece of everything. And, um, you know, well, Jeff Immelt is a different philosophy, different approach. But He's it's a little more low key. Low key, but here's a guy who survived. You know, markets have hit a record, and you look at this. I, I, I did a piece for this on, you know, Business Week a while back. It was like pulling teeth, uh, getting information from the company because there's some people out there that are untouchable. Jeff Immelt, he's just a nice guy. You know, football player. What job. was he at Dartmouth? He's got it. He's done a good job, but this company, and you could say it was bad luck. He inherited it before 9/11. Right. Uh, no one really talks about GE much anymore. And, you know, they just make a ton of money doing what they do. They're still very profitable. They they cut out business sectors that aren't long-term gainers for them. They focus on the things like uh, health and medical um, technology where they have a huge strategic advantage. They're a money machine. The fact that they no longer own a financial television network, so their CEO isn't out getting his ass kicks, kissed every month on, on a local channel. Remind me, uh, you know, remind you me, is, G, is GE still in the Dow? I believe so. And Apple is not in the Dow. You know, I've been a critic of this. You know, I wonder, just we have a few, we have a, uh, like a minute on, on this uh, slot, but I, I wonder if Apple was put in the Dow a couple years ago. I know it's wonky. You could well have the Dow at 24,000 right now. And what kind yeah, absolutely. of a, what kind Although of a remember, psychological it's a price plus? index, not sure. a capitalization index. So if they split, their impact is much. That seven to one split reduced their impact. Yeah, dramatically but even when they did split, like those guys didn't put them in. And I know nobody indexes to the Dow. It's just the thing that the nightly news guy, maybe at the top mm -hmm. of the hour, talks about. And to the extent that people are still, you know this. People 
people are still not talking about the markets anywhere near where they were, you know, in the middle of 2000. That these things happened. They pulled people, uh, you know, two years ago when the markets did a 30% year, and most people thought that the markets lost money. Right. As long as people aren't talking about it, there's still more upside. Uh, Barry That's the holds. psychology of group <laughs> behavior. Until the crowd comes back in full force, the odds are that there are more. Uh, there's more upside. And when mom and pop are in. And the cab driver, and you know, as Kennedy used to say in the 30s the and 20s, when the shoeshine boy yeah. is talking about it, that's when you take your money off the table. We're talking to Barry Ritholtz. He is the turducken renaissance man, polymath of Wall Street. Stay with us. I love polymath. That's such a good word. <laughs> Talking to Barry Ritholtz, uh, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Sir, have you no shame? You went out in kneecap just a few weeks ago, an 85-year-old heart transplant recipient, legendary <laughs> investor, founder and CEO of the Vanguard Group, Jack Bogle. Uh, you, you know, you, you paid some lip service in the lead of your column, but said, uh, uh, you know, I, I, who am I to, uh, to be blasphemous? I'm as close to being a Boglehead as you will find without actually being one. Having said that, you disagree with this guy's investing philosophy. You wrote... It ignores diversification of assets. It ignores equities in other parts of the world that are both cheaper and faster growing. It ignores that over time, currency issues are awash. It reflects a home country bias. Excluding a vast asset class turns Bogle into an active investor in passive clothing. So, yeah, Bogle is in the path of the greats, you wrote. His contributions to the investing world can't be overstated. But that it would be unfortunate if you ignored the newest data that logically leads to deviations from his original plan. Walk me through that. Well, first of all, I I do have a tremendous amount of respect for what he did, what he built, what he accomplished. And I think for the most part, his philosophy is dead on. However... We, we all tend to be products of the era we grew up in. And as time has progressed, things we learn new things. So Bogle's complaint about ETFs, for example, is that, uh, you know, you have the potential to overtrade them and jump in and out and do really dumb things. And that's true, but that's kind of like being against kitchen knives because someone could get stabbed with one. You know, don't be an idiot with ETFs, and, and they're a much more simple, easy-to-use product than, let's say, a mutual fund. But what about on international? The fact that they teach you in business school fundamentally that the closest thing to a free lunch that you have in investing, you know, with the efficient frontier, CAPM and whatnot, is try to own a piece of everything on the planet at the most cost-efficient basis possible. If you can own a piece of Peruvian alpacas, you know, Haas avocados, Florida mangoes, equities, REITs, small-cap value in sub-Saharan Africa, do it. I mean, in practicality, it's really hard to own those things. They're not securitized yet. Increasingly, no, no, in, the, not. Increasingly in the stuff, ETF least... world, you can. But, um, you know, he's saying that international is overrated. A lot of that is just goosed up currency. Um, well, here's the thing with currency trading and, and the impact on international ownership. 
in any one given month, quarter, even year, the currency differential can turn a winning position into a losing position. So if you didn't own Hedge Japan and Japan stocks are running up but the yen is collapsing, so where's your gain? But net-net, currency is a zero-sum game, and when you look at that across the entire world over time, it's a wash. So you gain a little here and you lose a little there due to currency. It, it doesn't matter. And the ability to own developed XUS and emerging market stocks and small cap value overseas and Europe and Japan. Listen, if you think the U.S. stocks are expensive, you look around the world, um, Europe is cheap and emerging markets are even cheaper. So to ignore that entire side of, of the planet, you know, we're 300 plus million people. We're a tiny sliver of the, of the world. Our markets are a bigger chunk, but there's a great big world out there and to ignore it is, is a huge mistake. And by the way, we can now, you know, the complaint was it was expensive to buy these. There were tax considerations. You know, he was right 30, 40 years ago. Today, I could buy an ETF. I don't have to worry about the currency. I don't have to worry about the tax. The cost structure is 20 bips. 20 basis points, right? That? Well, at what point are you getting too pretty with diversification? You know, I've asked you this before uh, for articles and in our conversations that the argument with something like a capitalization weighted benchmark like the S&P 500 or the Wilshire 5000 is some of the finest, uh, you know, most quality, trusted companies in the world. After all, they do have international operations. Coca-Cola is present in sub-Saharan Africa, in Japan, in uh, the developed world, in Australia, in South America. Why go playing with other people's uh, currency risks and um, corporate governance differentials when you can get that in a broad-based U.S. index? For, for a couple of reasons. First, there are a couple of things that we know about long-term investing, and we know that value over time outperforms growth, and we also know that smaller capitalization stocks over time outperform large cap growth. I mean, that, that's the, the small cap premium. There's a wealth of data that proves that to be the case. So by saying, I'm just going to own the S&P 500 because that'll give me overseas exposure, you're ignoring value and you're ignoring small cap and you're leaving a lot of money on the table by that approach. Well, then tell me, you know, if somebody approaches you, there's, you know, there's the Barry Ritholtz who comes, what, barreling into uh, Penn Station in his power scarf and everything with his gorgeous Never head Penn of Station. hair. Oh, was it Grand Central that I saw you in? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I saw you in Grand Central. I was like, man, this is a man for the ages. But to get his attention, you got to take him to like Peter Luger or Keen Steakhouse or something. What about the mom and pop who accosts you? If someone's out there, uh, you know, working class person saying, I have a kid who was just born and I'm looking, you know, T minus uh, 18 to college. What is what is the best advice you can give them, knowing that it's impossible to kind of hold their hand in a three minute conversation? What, what can you say? You know, I've been writing to that audience for at least a decade, and especially in the Washington Post column. You know, Bloomberg is a little more sophisticated, professional audience. But the approach has been keep it simple, own a broad assortment of, of assets through inexpensive ETFs, uh, or, or if you can't replicate certain things, then inexpensive Vanguard or DFA-type mutual funds, and... You know, rebalance once a year. You want a U.S. big cap and a U.S. small cap, and 
You want some emerging markets and some developed. But for the nine and a half out of ten mom and pops who don't quite understand that, what can they do? Do they put it in a target? Do they put it in a target fund? I mean, who out who I'm out not there? Not a huge fan of the target funds. Mm-hmm. If if someone says just gun to the head, just buy one thing. Vanguard has a 60-40 portfolio. The past 10 years, it's averaged about 9%. It's it's not optimal, but if you want a short answer, hey, go buy the Vanguard 60-40. The expense ratio is 0.24. You, while you might be able to do better, for sure you could do a lot worse. Barry, do you have kids? No kids, just a couple of big dogs. So, uh, if somebody, you know, uh, th- there's a lot of there's a lot of concern out there that we're going to enter into a period of of having to pay for this massive inflation of interest rates. We have not known anything like a bond bear market since the early '80s. You know, when you were an equestrian 70s, stud, the right? '70s. So, yeah, the bull uh, market and bonds started in '82. In '82, right? Thirty-three years and running. But then we had to really slam on the brakes. Uh, Paul Volcker did, and then Alan Greenspan did in 1994. Right. Um, you have been uh, really critical of how Pimco has handled a lot of this. That there was a lot of ego there, and these guys, for being the biggest mutual fund in the world, the biggest bond fund, they completely called it wrong. And obviously, that that exploded in this paroxysm of ego when when Bill Gross departed and Mohammed El Arian stepped down. Uh, how are people supposed to look at bond investing, which is not as easy as indexing? So that's a a, a little more complex question. It, it really depends on what your financial circumstances are. If you're a person with a substantial amount of assets and a high taxable income in a high-tax state, the first thing I would say is set up a laddered muni bond portfolio, capture 4 or 5% uh, tax-free, and, and be happy for it. If it's a smaller portfolio that might not have a few million dollars to throw at munis, I would say you want a combination of things like um, REITs and corporate preferreds as well as higher quality um, uh, corporates and as well as U.S. Treasuries, and and that could be 20 or 30% of your portfolio. And there are a lot of ways you could pick that up. I like the double-line mortgage-backed paper that Jeff Gunlock um, runs you. You need a couple again another of bucks. another bastion of modesty in in bond management. Jeff, um, what is it about <laughs> bonds that makes people? Uh... These are men in bondage. That's what I was thinking. His, <laughs> but his but there's a way to get exposure actually. without you know having to put a million dollars into munis and and an assortment of different quality. And that's the key. High yield is only for bigger portfolios with enough diversification to absorb the risk. High high quality corporates, some REITs, uh, some mortgage backs and treasuries, and that's your bond exposure. Just don't have high expected returns for it, given where we are. You recently penned a column for the Washington Post where uh, you know you're like, I'm finally coming out with my something approximating an all weather portfolio. Could you dish that out, kind of back of the envelope, the 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 Barry Ritholtz diversification masterclass in one minute? Sure. That 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 portfolio was a um, was a. Uh, I'm being yelled at not to have my feet up on the uh, on the yeah, desk. Yeah, it's not quite the Bloomberg um, way. Uh, but anyway, go ahead. That um, that portfolio was pushed back to the Tony Robbins all weather portfolio, which was based very very loosely on something that Ray Dalio of Bridgewater had put out, 
which is here's a portfolio with a lot of commodities and a lot of bonds in a at the end of a period where commodities and bonds had done really well. This that's kind of a rookie mistake. You don't buy just what was doing well, sure. you buy what was what is likely to do well and uh, my portfolio was everything we talked about uh, stocks US stocks emerging market development uh, REITs corporates etc and that's the approach that um, you have to take and is there a target number in the back of your head especially now this is an important question after everything has been so inflated and people are talking about another lean decade ahead of us when you look at the CAPE Schiller numbers and um, you know reversion to the mean what do you over the long run kind of have as a realistic uh, uh, return number, blended return number yearly that you're you're kind of thinking that's my realistic goal and it's something that uh, I will approach realistically into. you have two to three percent on the fixed income side and six to eight percent on the equity side. You do the math and it's somewhere between six and ten percent. That's your long term average. Uh, maybe we're in the beginning of a secular bull market. Maybe not. We're not. I have no idea. Maybe bonds reverse and stop rallying maybe they don't everybody's been forecasting that so far has been wrong but your expected returns are not relevant the market's going to do what it's going to do regardless of your hopes dreams and aspirations Barry what keeps you up at night now I mean if this is not you know re too much coffee replay, <laughs> I know you should try that's the cold brew it. the cold brew really spazzes me yeah. out I love it but tell that's, me that's pretty much it if you're thinking I, I've about learned it, to to really sum this up I've learned to worry about things that are within my own control, like my own behavior. And you know what? I can't control what the Fed's going to do. I can't control what Greece and Germany is going to resolve. The Israelis and Pakistanis and, and what's happening in, in the Middle East and what's happening in Turkey and Pakistan and India, I can't control that. So I can't worry about that. Markets go up and down. That's what they do. All of that is beyond my ability to control. However, my own behavior, my own ability to do really stupid things at the worst possible time, that's what I can control, and that's where I focus my efforts. But to crystallize this for our listeners out there, this is not necessarily, in, in relative or absolute terms, a more volatile time for the world than, say, it was in the 1970s or the early 1980s. Of course, you're talking about you know, people coming out of Vietnam and the Nixon years and, and everything else that happened and the stagflation of the 70s. There's always, there's always this tendency for people to think that it is so horrific and insurmountable this time. Well, it's never different this time. It never changes. It's human nature. It's always a disaster. And that's why we always have to look past the headlines and think long term. And there you have it. Barry Ritholtz, the horse-riding, smack-talking, money-managing renaissance man of Wall Street. Find him at the Big Picture blog, The Washington Post, and Bloomberg View. Also, his podcast, Masters of Business, on iTunes. Find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Facebook at Full D Radio. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. <laughs>